before Mark comes up to speak. James 3, um, starting at 1 through to 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. May God bless his word to us. Mark, would you like to come up and I can pray for you? Um, Let's just pray for Mark. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we want to pray for our brother Mark. We thank you, Lord, for restoring his health to us. And we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon him now, Lord. We reminded of that verse in scripture that says in our weakness your strength shows forth and so we ask lord that you would fill him with your strength this evening help him lord to preach your word faithfully and help us lord to have ears that listen in jesus precious name amen well good evening everyone's great to be back um not quite firing on four cylinders i'd probably say more like one but um that's okay um one of the things that's difficult when you're not very well is um, not feeling like you're able to do very much. But one of the blessings of it is I've had loads of time to read. I've read a number of books over the last few weeks that I found really helpful and uh, not related to this talk. But one that I'd really commend to you if you want something to read over Christmas is Tim Keller's new little book on Christmas called Hidden Christmas. Um, I think if you're a Christian, this would be a great thing to read devotionally just to really help you get into some of the stories of Christmas because he always brings out insights and things that you've probably not spotted before. But I also think this is a really good book to give to a friend. If you've got a friend who kind of knows the Christmas story and is a bit of a thinker and would engage, I think this is a great book to give away. Um, I've read it and I'm about to give it to someone. So just something I read this week that's been a real blessing and I'd encourage you if if, uh, you want to be blessed or want to give this to someone that's a cracking little book for this Christmas Um, it's quite big writing so it's easy easy to read there we go 
Great. Well, can anyone guess um, how many words the average man speaks a day? Timo, do you want to guess? Um, 16 million. 16 million. Maybe. Possibly you might speak 16 million. Uh, well, that's not too bad. The average man is 13,000 words. I'm not sure where you would sit in that. How about the average woman? Are we going higher? Are we going lower? Average women about two, 20,000 words, okay? 13 and 20. Um, I don't know how they work that out. I, uh, I doubt it's true, but there we go. Um, but you think about the words you speak, whether you speak thousands of words, hundreds of millions of words, or very few words. Um, what do you do with the words that you speak each day? That's what we're going to be thinking about. Words are very powerful, aren't they? Um, just as a little by way of introduction, words have great power to make us laugh, don't they? I always, I'm always laughing when you see, you know, a manufacturer's instructions. You buy a kind of um, one of these chocolate cakes you put in the, in the microwave from M&S, and it will say on it, uh, caution may get hot when heated. Um, or sometimes on the bottom of it, it says, caution, do not turn over. <laughs> a little bit late. Um, I've seen a very funny one on a child's Superman garment that you could buy in Sainsbury's that says, um, warning, wearing this garment doesn't allow you to fly. Um, I bought some Christmas lights last year, and uh, very funny, they said on the box, um, uh, for indoor and outdoor use only. <laughs> and my favorite one was, I think, a typo from a company that produced kitchen knives in South Korea, and it said on the packaging, warning, keep out of children. <laughs> So words do have the ability to make us laugh, don't they? And I think people like Michael McIntyre and Lee Mack and Tim Vine, for me, they're some of the funny people. And when they're clean, I find them really good comedians. They make me laugh. Words are very powerful to make us laugh, aren't they? Uh, Words also are very powerful by way of remembrance. Uh, If I said to you, um, we will fight them on the beaches before my time, but I know the words, uh, you would say... Winston Churchill. Um, if I said to you, um, to be or not to be, you might say, that is the question. Is the question. Hamlet, very good, 1600. Uh, one for the children. If I said, don't, very good, Homer Simpson. So words evoke kind of remembrance, don't they, for some of us. Uh, words as well can have huge power for encouragement. You'll know that The right words said in the right way, particularly at the right time, even if there are very few words, can be hugely powerful in your life, can't they? But equally, words can be hugely powerful in the negative. The wrong words spoken in the wrong way, particularly at the wrong time, can do huge amounts of damage. And I'm sure you can remember in your mind the words that someone has spoken to you that have done you damage. Uh, And sometimes they live very deep within, don't they? And they're very hard to forgive and to let go of. You've probably heard the adage, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's just not true, is it? Uh, Words do hurt one another all the time. Um, So first of all, just uh, by way of introduction, let's just remember tonight that words are very powerful. But let's also remember that words are actually a heart issue. You'll know from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, uh, Matthew, the writer, says it's from the overflow of a person's heart that their mouth speaks. So actually the words that we speak are a reflection of the attitude of our hearts. And we see that in James, don't we? If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, it's into next week's reading. Uh, But James asked the question to um, the scattered Christians he's speaking to, what causes fights and quarrels among you? 
don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the words that we speak are actually not as important as the heart attitude which fuels the words that we speak. So I've got three things I'd like to draw out. If you know this passage, you're probably familiar with the middle bit, the bit about the horse's bit and the rudder and the spark. There's a bit before, though, that we often rush through and a bit at the end that we often skip as well. So I'm going to try and hold it all together and draw out three things that I think James helps us with as we seek to look um, at this passage together. Here's the first one. I think James helps us to see that words in many ways are a litmus test of our spiritual maturity. I think this is a very deeply convicting part of our passage. Have a look at verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. One of the things I love about that verse is that James the writer, who identified himself, do you remember the very first verse of the book, a servant of Christ, James was the man who led the church in Jerusalem. But I love in this verse how he identifies himself with the problem. He uses the word we. Not many of us who presume to be teachers um, should presume... uh, Sorry, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach. So James knows that the power of the tongue is very powerful, and therefore those who speak, and particularly those who preach, have great responsibility. So just that verse alone, for those of you who preach... And a big note to myself, we need to take this very, very seriously, because when we're handling the word of God, that's a very, very serious thing. And we need to be very careful, because the words that we speak can be very powerful. But notice as well, he says, not many of you should become teachers. In our verses, 1 to 12, the thing that really struck me preparing this is, if you'll notice, there's no commands in these verses, bar this one. Which is strange, isn't it? For something so powerful as the use of our tongue you'd expect James to lay out almost lots of instructions saying do this don't do that but interestingly he doesn't I think the reason and we'll come to this is that instead what he wants to do is paint a picture of what our tongues can do he doesn't really need to give us instructions because the picture that he paints says it all but come to verse 2 Because I think this is where uh, James wants to help us to understand that the words that we speak are this litmus test for spiritual maturity. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault, literally who never stumbles in what they say, is perfect. And that word perfect is spoken in the sense of maturity, not moral perfection. It's talking about maturity. Is mature or perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So what James is saying in the beginning of this little bit of um, scripture is that the words that we speak, positive or negative, uh, the words that we do speak, perhaps even the words that we fail to speak, they actually can have an enormous impact on your and my spiritual maturity. Um, Jim Packard talked about words being a character index of a person's faith. If someone was to follow you all day long and listen to the words that you speak, what do you think that would tell them about your spiritual maturity? Um, I asked myself that same question a number of times preparing, and it was deeply convicting. Because I realized so often the words that I can speak will expose great immaturity. uh, And we need to confess that. Just as a few examples um, from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is full of these pithy kind of sayings, wisdom sayings. Notice a few of them which relate to the words that we speak. Uh, The one who guards their lips guards their life, 
but the one who speaks rashly comes to ruin. It says a lot in a very few words, doesn't it? Proverbs 12, verse 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And Proverbs 18, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So James wants to get across to us that in many ways, the use of our words is a litmus test, a gauge for our spiritual maturity. And it's worth asking, of your 13,000 words, of your 20,000 words, as you speak each week, how are those words helping you to mature? Or are they a reflection of spiritual immaturity? But the second thing we see in this passage is that words hold great influence and control. And this is the bit of the passage that's perhaps more familiar to us. Uh, Verse 3, when we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Now, one way to read this would be to say, look, here are these very small things that have the ability to control very big things. You put a bit, this bit of metal the size of a sort of finger in a horse's mouth. It's very small, but by turning it and by pulling on it, you can control a very powerful horse. It can slow down, it can turn left and turn to the right. A small thing can control a very big thing. Or take this little rudder on the back of a great ship, a tiny rudder, a little movement, and it can turn a great big freight ship. Or take a little match, and we all know that a little match can do great damage and become a great fire. But actually, I don't think that is the implication here, though that's true. I think more what James is getting at isn't so much that small things can influence big things, but it's more the issue of control. A bit is what is used to control the direction and speed of a horse. The rudder is what is used to control a great ship. And then James gets to the illustration of a match. If you could just knock the lights, Wellesley. There we go, that'll do. So here's a little match, just look at this. There's a tiny little match, and it's pretty insignificant. I could put that out by wetting my fingers and just crushing the flames, but I could also just give a little tiny puff. And it's gone out. Thanks, Wally. James has given us the examples of control from the horse's bit and from the rudder of the ship, but he then gets to the tongue, and he says, think about that tiny little flame. Can you control that? And the picture that he gives is of this great forest fire. You know that if that tiny match combined with oxygen and something to burn can become that picture on the screen very, very quickly. And no one can control that, can they? And James then takes that very vivid image that you see on the screen behind me. And he says, friends, that is what your tongue can do. Have a look at verse six. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body 
That's what we were talking about earlier, about this kind of litmus test for spiritual maturity. It has the influence over all that we are. And then it gets really strong. James says it can even set the whole course of a person's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. It's very evocative, isn't it? It's very strong. Why is James being so strong here? That last phrase is literally sort of saying something like, um, the devil will use poorly spoken words to further his kingdom in incredibly powerful ways. You'll know, won't you, that it doesn't take much that is spoken which isn't true or is not kind to do great damage. Tiny little spark. And in the right places at the right time, you get a great forest fire like you see on the screen behind me. And to let it down even thicker, look at verse 7, because James wants to continue the illustrations. They're all here in the passage. Verse 7, he says, All kinds of beasts, birds, reptiles, sea creatures have been tamed and have been tamed by mankind. In the first century, uh, beasts were symbols of power. So if you could tame a great beast, maybe a lion in the Colosseum or a great bear, that was a sign of human power. And they could do that to an extent. But then James says, okay, you take a lion that you can tame. You take a bear which you can tame. Then take your tongue. And he says, doesn't he, can any human being, verse 8, tame the tongue? It is a restless evil, a kind of untamable, unruly, unstable evil, full of deadly poison. As you hear those words uh, read and perhaps explained a bit, just allow them to sink into your heart. They're very, very powerful, aren't they? I think the reason that James doesn't give any commands in this little passage is because he doesn't need to. If I was to say to you, what is the command that comes out of this passage? You wouldn't take long to guess, would you? It's a very strong passage. And actually, James has talked about one of the big themes all the way through the book of James is the use of tongue. If you've got a book here of James, just turn back to chapter 1. Just want to give you a few examples of how we've seen this already through this letter. Chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Is that true of your life? It's so often not true of mine. He goes on to say, for a person's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. Um, have a look at chapter 1 verse 26 if anyone considers himself religious and yet doesn't keep a tight rein on their tongue they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless and then into chapter 4 verse 11 which is a passage for next week brothers and sisters do not slander one another anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it I want to really ground this. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time now trying to give some really practical applications of the ways in which we can use our tongue in in negative ways. And what I'd love us to do, because we're going to have a time of confession later on in the service, if there's just one that stands out for you, that really digs into your heart, just take that one and allow that to be the thing that you think through. But here are a few examples for us. Um, Firstly, we're going to think about wrong speech, the words that we do speak that are, are hurtful. How often are the words that we speak um, filled with bitterness? Uh, One of the things that works in kind of English, uh, British humour is sarcasm, isn't it? And sometimes it can be appropriate and quite funny. But often hidden in sarcasm is a kind of bitterness, isn't there? A little dig. 
where you say a little side comment, but actually it's a quite pointed, direct comment just to get one up on someone who's hurt you because you're living with bitterness. Our words can be very bitter and hugely destructive. What about gossip? I think as Christians we're pretty poor at this. Uh, Sometimes person A comes to person B in complete confidence, shares something. Later, person B is with person C. And you know how it goes. Um, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but do you know what A told me yesterday? And then the really frightening thing is it's often covered up with kind of spiritual, should we just pray about it? You you know the sort of situation? It's a really good thing to pray about it. But if A has come to B in confidence, B shouldn't talk to C, even if they're going to pray about it. But sometimes as Christians, we kind of, the little sideways thing in love, but actually it's wrong. It's very easy to gossip about people behind their backs. What about just negative speech and complaining? Um, Steph will tell you this. One thing that I'm quite convicted of, uh, you may see, think it's very trivial, but I try never to say I am starving. And the reason I try never say that is because I've worked in parts of the world with people who physically are starving. And when you've done that, it's just not right to use the tongue loosely and go, well, I'm starving. I know it's just a figure of speech. In some ways, it's harmless. But actually, it's quite powerful, isn't it? I will never, ever be starving. Ever. Because of the place that I live and the means that I have. But I know people who physically are starving and it's a frightening thing. So maybe we need to be careful with the sort of throwaway lines. Which aren't actually true. Uh, Dishonesty. So often the little lies that we tell actually, they're not, they're covering up aren't they, our own reputation. We don't want people to think badly of us or we want to cover up a mistake we've made. So a little lie just deflects attention from the mistakes we've made. But it'd be quite easy to get into habits of these little comments, can't it? Maybe it's outbursts of anger, where we just react emotionally in the moment to something. Even if the thing that we react to is a bad thing and it requires a reaction, we just react with a word. And it's often quite a sharp word to put someone down or to make us feel better. Um, In a book I'm going to mention shortly, I read something like this week, which I found very convicting. Um, The author said, the hardest thing in the world is to be right, but not hurt anybody with it. You know, when you know that you're right and you've been wronged by someone, very, very hard not to use the tongue in an unkind way, where you know that you're right, but you use it in a way that hurts another person. But all these things, bitterness, gossip, dishonesty, outbursts of anger, the thing that really strikes me with all of them is actually they're quite me-centered, aren't they? The things that I do to make myself feel better about me or to put down somebody else who's hurt me. But there's another thing about speech that's perhaps a little more subtle. We're perhaps all aware of these things, the things that we say that aren't kind that can do great damage. But equally and perhaps more subtly, we've got great power in our speech in the words that we fail to speak that we should speak. Um, how often are we guilty of um, failing as Christians to communicate hope? You know, when someone comes to you and they are in the depths of despair and they're just spilling out all their woe is me, it's very easy to kind of join in on the Eeyore moment, isn't it? And you either carry on and go, yeah, woe is you, or even worse still go, well, enough about you, woe is me. Tell you about my week. Isn't it much more powerful if you're a Christian? When someone is coming to you with discouragement, perfectly legitimate discouragement, maybe to speak hope into that situation. To lift someone out of their own situation and to point them to the gospel and to a God who loves them. But so often we fail to communicate hope, don't we? 
Often we fail to protect with our words. You know when you, you see injustice or you hear exaggeration or a lie, so often it's just easier to keep quiet because it's a bit awkward to challenge someone. But actually, it's wrong to not speak. We need to speak out against what is not true. Not in a pharisaical way, constantly looking to pick holes in people, but if something we hear is not honouring to God or honouring to another person, it's right to say something. But it's so much easier not to say anything. Some people um, hate confrontation. We're all wired differently. But if you're a person who doesn't like confrontation, perhaps at times you struggle with not saying a difficult word to someone when you know you really ought to. Because it's just easier to let things go. But actually, if we can build in a church, a culture where we trust each other and we love each other, we love each other enough to say the difficult words to help another person grow. Last little example. How many of us would put our hands up and go, we're just rubbish at saying sorry? They're words that we should speak that so often we fail to speak because in our pride, we just want to hang on to the mistake that we've made and not admit it. But with all the things that we can say that are not helpful, all the things that we fail to say that we should say, go back to that Matthew verse in Matthew chapter 12 because Matthew said it's out of the overflow of a person's heart that they speak. So actually, with all these things, words that we speak or fail to speak probably actually reveal a deeper idol within our hearts. And perhaps for most of us, those deep idols are things like control and uh, reputation and comfort. Just a couple of things I'm going to stick on the screen. We'll give you a moment to reflect on them. And perhaps you can come back to these questions in our time of confession at the end. Ask yourself this question. When do I speak when silence would be more godly. Just give you a moment to think about that. The second question, when do I remain silent when speaking up would be more godly? I'm sure for each of us in different ways, we can hold a hand up and say we often get both of these things very wrong. Just um, one of the books I read this last few weeks, which I think is absolutely brilliant on this subject, is one by a guy called Paul Tripp called War of Words. I think this is a brilliant book. If you are someone who knows deep in your heart that you get your words wrong often or fail to speak words you should, I think this is a really helpful book. Um, To give you a taster, I think one of the chapters particularly kind of summarizes the whole book. And if you haven't got time to read the whole book or don't think you'll ever get around to it, you could just read one chapter. And I photocopied um, about 20 20 lots of one chapter. But I think it's a brilliant book. And perhaps pick up one of these at the end if you want to think about this a bit more uh, or pick up this book. But I I find it hugely helpful and massively convicting as I was thinking through some of these things. And those two questions came out of that book. Um, But I really commend it to you. War of Words by Paul Tripp. But the last thing I'd like us to look at is that words, James also says, are deeply relational. Have a look at verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's image. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. If you stop and think about it, the words that we speak that are wrong, or the words that we should speak that we fail to speak, how often actually... The reason behind those things is that we forget who it is that we're speaking to. 
when someone hurts us, they're still a brother and sister in Christ. It's so easy, isn't it, just to inject a bit of poison, a little put-me-down, a little something to make me feel better. But actually, I need to look at that person who's hurt me and say, they're my brother and sister in Christ. They're made in the image of God. Yes, I need to confront them because they've hurt me, but how can I do it in a way that's going to help them and help me? How can I do it in a way that's godly, that's going to flourish and build this relationship rather than just tear it apart? Words are deeply relational. So you've got your 13,000 words, you've got your 20,000 words. Just have a think. How do I use those words in a typical week? But as we saw in verse 2, we're left with a bit of a problem, aren't we? Because James says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And then in verse 8, no human can tame the tongue. So what do we do? Because we're convicted in our hearts, we get our words wrong, the words we speak, the words we fail to speak. And James tells us basically we can't control our tongues. Where do we go? If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn up to John's Gospel and chapter 7. I want to just show you one verse that I would love us to hang on to this week. John's Gospel, chapter 7. The context, Jesus Jesus is in the temple courts. Um, he's teaching, people are amazed at his teaching. There's a bit of a dispute going on over whether or not he's the Christ. The Jews are very, very angry. And we pick it up in verse 45. Notice what the Jews say to the temple guards. They're very cross with Jesus and they say, why don't you bring him in? We should arrest this man and get rid of him. But do you notice what the temple guards say in chapter 7, verse 46? No one ever spoke the way This man does. You take that verse and you come back to James chapter 3 verse 2. Yes, we all stumble in many ways. Yes, we're often at fault in what we say. Yes, left to ourselves, we have the inability to keep our body in check. But the great news for us as Christians is that there was one who never stumbled. Who was never at fault in what he said who was always able to keep his whole body in check. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So as God's spirit lays on your heart a conviction perhaps of where you get speech wrong, and as he does that for me, the first thing we need to do is come to our saviour, Jesus Christ, and ask for forgiveness. He never said anything that was wrong, anything that was unkind, anything that was untrue. And he promises to forgive us for every loose word that we have spoken, And every unspoken word that we should have spoken. But more than that, we also come to Jesus Christ, not just for forgiveness, but also for a transformed heart. Because as we've seen, the words that we speak in many ways are a reflection of our heart. And so as we come to God tonight and ask for his forgiveness for the words that we speak that aren't helpful, let's most importantly come to him and say, Lord God, would you change my heart from the inside? Would your spirit do a work in me? so that out of the overflow of my heart, my mouth will speak, and that it will speak to the glory of God. Why don't you just take a moment to reflect. I'm going to put back on the screen that image that we looked at earlier of the fire. And I'm going to keep that on the screen uh, through our time of confession that Jeff will lead us in. Just take a moment to reflect on how God's challenged you and come before him our saviour who will forgive us and our saviour who promises by his spirit to transform each of our hearts.
have a, a bit of quiet time while Simon plays <coughs> piano, just to reflect on what we've heard this evening and allow the spirit to to work in our hearts. James also says James also says at the end of his letter confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Healing is both spiritual and physical and we know that often when we are the recipients of harsh words they hurt and they wound and the antidote to that is to for somebody to for forgiveness so if you feel that you've hurt somebody with your words it doesn't have to be recently it could be a long time ago something that you said an attitude you know how it is because each one of us have received words that have wounded and hurt likewise we've also delivered them so we know from first hand experience what that feels like God is sensitive and as we've read this evening we're all made in the image of God and the spirit is grieved by our our attitudes and our words and so often we blame other people for putting too much pressure on us perhaps circumstances and so on and so forth but at the end of the day it's all sin it's grievous to God and it's grievous to those whom we have hurt For a word is on my tongue, Lord. You know it completely, says the psalmist. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Tongue of the wise adorns knowledge. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. James says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God resist the devil and he will flee from you come near to God and he will come near to you wash your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded grieve, mourn and wail change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourselves then before the Lord and he will lift you up
and always look to Jesus. No one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, Lord, may that be our testimony in this world that we may use our tongues the way Jesus did so that people will know that by our love you are there with us.